back to another episode of Hazmatician Chronicles. It's been a little while since we posted. Uh, our last episode was back in April when we posted that. I've been kind of missing in action a little bit. I've been taking college classes this summer, trying to knock out as much as I can towards my degree. So it's been really taking a lot of my time up. So I haven't had a free moment till now to sit down, do the research, write my notes down, and actually sit down and record. And here we are now. Really excited. It's been, uh, I've been itching to get back to recording because I love doing the podcasting. Hopefully everybody's staying safe out there right now. It's uh, kind of crazy times. Going to kind of dive right into it. I mean, it's early morning here in South Florida. Got my coffee, got a workout in already. We're going to be going into carbon monoxide today. And I wrote an article that got published on Fire Engineering Online and sent out the uh, e-newsletter for Fire Engineering back in October of last year, 2019. We titled it Carbon Monoxide, A Silent Killer. So I will post that link into our FDU podcast Facebook page, and I will also post it on our sponsors Facebook page as well, which our sponsor today is Hazmat Advanced Training Solutions. This company is top notch when it comes to offering the highest quality of customized hazmat and advanced fire training courses. So when we talk about carbon monoxide, at some point in every first responder's career, they're probably going to have to respond to a, a CO call of some kind, whether it's an unintentional alarm or an intentional alarm or just a call out for, you know, maybe a suicide attempt. It, the point is that you will be probably going to a CO call. And, and there's quite a few things that you want to look, look into, whether you're doing your monitoring for CO levels, whether you're going in and making retrieval of a viable victim, and just some kind of finer details of CO, because the one thing I've seen over the years in, in doing fire rescue for, for many, many years is the complacency when it comes to CO calls. You have no idea how many times I've heard people say, just hurry up, pop your head in and see if you see anything. No gear, no SCBA on, kind of like just take a breath and pop your head into the, the doorway of a house or an apartment and just peek in and you get out. Or, hey, just throw your SCBA on, go in with the monitor and check everything. But the problem is, the complacency is you need to have your bunker gear on because not only is carbon monoxide toxic, which is the main and primary issue that we're going to be dealing with, but it's also flammable. And we're going to be going into the finer details of the chemical itself, the chemical characteristics. We're going to touch on the NIOSH guide a little bit too, which is a wealth of uh, information to get you get the ball rolling kind of on a research aspect of things with the finer points of carbon monoxide. But when we think of asphyxiants, which carbon monoxide is categorized in, there's two types of divisions of asphyxiants. We have a simple asphyxiant and then we have a systemic asphyxiant. A simple asphyxiant is basically anything that will displace oxygen in a confined space or a prolonged time, whether it's a large room or whatnot. But the point is the amount of that product, that chemical, aka that gas, is being released into a non-vented area or limited vented area. At some point, it's going to overpower the amount of oxygen that's in the room that you're breathing right now, and it's going to push out the oxygen and replace it with that chemical, for example. And that's your simple asphyxiant. So if you were to go in there, now you're going into a oxygen deficient environment, which obviously we need oxygen to breathe and live and, and you know cellular respiration. Well, now we're breathing in that gas that is now replacing the oxygen in that room. And, and just some examples of a uh, simple asphyxiant is carbon dioxide. And we went over this in one of our first installments of the Hazmatician Chronicles about dry ice. Dry ice is just a solid form of CO2. Whether it's the solid form of CO2 that's decomposing and creating that CO2 gas, or it's actually a CO2 gas release. 
you'll see CO2 tanks a lot of times at bars, restaurants where, you know, that's how they dispense beer, soda, anything that needs to be carbonated. So, and it's not just CO2. It could be nitrogen. It could be helium, methane, propane. If that's leaking into a building, if you have a gas leak on the exterior and it's getting into a building, it's going to displace the oxygen potentially. And again, large amounts of that product will push out the oxygen and replace it. Therefore, you have oxygen deficient environment. So that's as simple as fixing it is you're just becoming hypoxic because you don't have enough normal levels of oxygen to sustain life. How do we deal with that, though, if we respond to that type of call? Well, one, obviously, you want to have your bunker gear on just in case there's a flammability range. You want to make sure you have your SCB on because you need to bring your own air into that environment. If we have a victim that's viable, all we do is we just get them out and get them into fresh air and start giving them some high flow oxygen, kind of, you know, helping them come around. Obviously, if they're more critical and they're not breathing, obviously, we're going to be doing breathing for them, CPR possibly and all that. But let's dive into carbon monoxide. And I said before, it's a systemic asphyxiant. And what is a systemic asphyxiant? Well, when we're dealing with a issue where the gas is going to affect my body at the cellular level, that makes it a systemic asphyxiant. Hydrogen cyanide is another one. And a lot of times they'll say, oh, well, in you know, smoke from a fire, we're dealing with the toxic twins, they call them. This is just one of the toxic twins. CO and hydrogen cyanide go hand in hand a lot of times in the smoke at structure fires. But we're going to focus on carbon monoxide today and what it does at the cellular level. Now, I'm sure in EMT school or first responder school, paramedic school, when you go over these kind of poisoning chapters and, and lecture, and they talk about carbon monoxide, they'll probably tell you, and depending on the literature you read, it's 210 to 250 times has more of an affinity to hemoglobin than the oxygen does. So basically, hemoglobin is what we need in our body to carry our oxygen to all the distal tissues, all the distal organs and the vital organs to keep us functioning as a healthy human being. But the moment we start getting into that range of I'm getting carbon monoxide poisoning, well, the oxygen is trying to fight to get on that hemoglobin, but the CO is a lot stronger. So it kind of just pushes it off and then takes the place of where the oxygen should be on your hemoglobin. So therefore, your body's transporting the CO level, the CO on the hemoglobin, and the oxygen is not getting to where it needs to be. So basically, you're being you're you're hypoxic in a way at the cellular level at the distal tissues of your body and that's the problem here that's what makes it a systemic problem so why is it a silent killer first off it's colorless and odorless that goes without saying don't forget it does have a flammability characteristic as well so again bunker gear scba all right play it safe even if you know it's a false alarm and you're running the same call every other shift and it's always a CO alarm activation, still wear your bunker gear because it's that one time that you don't, then all of a sudden, you know, it finds that nice little perfect range and then, you know, kaboom. According to the CDC, at least 430 people die from unintentional CO poisonings every year. And, and these 430 people that do succumb to the CO poisoning, they are not linked to any shape or form of inhalation of smoke at a structured fire. All right, this is just no fires at all. This is just CO release, whether it's a car by accident left on in the garage or a furnace or something going on that's creating that CO to get into a, a building. Uh, but the 430 people, it's the unintentional aspect of it there. Now, they say about 6,000 people die each year from CO poisoning. And that's kind of like the umbrella of unintentional, intentional, and it just kind of adds up. But the 430 number is the unintentional number we're looking at. And then they, the CDC also says that over 50,000 people visit the ER for some shape or form of CO poisoning 
or an exposure to it. So, but one thing I, I bring up too is your department can do surveillance. And what I mean by surveillance is look at the number of calls. So all of a sudden, if you have an increase in CO calls in a certain area or just overall in your, your response zone or region, that might be time to kind of say, you know, maybe we should put some public service announcements out. Maybe we should get with the news and have them do a story on it about the importance of carbon monoxide alarms and detectors in your house and the safety of it and signs and symptoms to look for. Because the thing is about CO poisoning is it does mimic flu-like symptoms, malaise, nausea, vomiting. When you start getting up in the higher exposure levels, like obviously the symptoms are going to be more you know, pronounced. But doing surveillance is very, very good thing for a department. One, it shows that the agency you're with is really doing community outreach on the, the hazards of a CO poisoning. And especially in the northern states where I guess furnaces and the heat's getting kicked on because it's going to get cold out. That might be the time because a lot of times those appliances may release CO, especially older ones. That's the time when to begin community outreach, public education on CO. So again, if you're having an increased amount of CO alarms, that's the time where you can start doing your surveillance on it and seeing, do I need to reach out to the community on this one? Just to kind of build that rapport with them on, hey, we're noticing an increase in calls for CO. Please be safe. This is what to look for kind of thing. Just some, some things to think about. And let's jump into how CO is formed. CO is formed due to incomplete combustion of a hydrocarbon fuel. Obviously, if we have complete combustion, complete combustion is a indicator that there is a good amount of oxygen with the air and the fuel and the burning. And with that, it reacts with the O2 and creates an exothermic reaction, which is an energy release. What's the... End result of that exothermic reaction is the formation of carbon dioxide and water vapor and the energy produced by the complete combustion of that fuel. So that's where you have no CO being formed. It's complete combustion. Everything's burned up. Everything's being released as carbon dioxide or water vapor and the energy. Now we get into the situation of CO is being produced because of incomplete combustion. And this is due to a lack of oxygen mixing with that burning fuel to create that complete combustion. With that said, when the incomplete combustion is occurring, the carbon and the oxygen atoms form a triple bond. How they form a triple bond is with a covalent bond. And I know I'm getting a little chemistry geeky here, but the covalent bond is where atoms share their electrons because remember, equilibrium is all around us. Everything kind of wants to form that nice balance with everything. And CO forming and sharing its electrons with the carbon and the oxygen is no different to that equilibrium. But that covalent bond makes it very unstable. So when you, and just a side note, when you have something that's double or triple bonded, those of you that are out there that are interested in hazmat, maybe getting your hazmat tech or you are a hazmat nerd like myself, anything that's double or triple bonded, be leery of it. Especially if you catch anything when you're doing your research in a NIOSH guide or the Wiser app. If you see any kind of double or triple bond, that should kind of warn you that we have a highly unstable product here. And the reason why it's so unstable is that if at any point those bonds break between those atoms, the energy release, the potential energy that's there in that bond could be exponential depending on the product, right? So CO, triple bonded, should tell you this is an unstable product. And what we go by is obviously the primary issue and the end result of that byproduct of the issue of it being triple bonded is the toxic release, okay? And why it is a toxic inhalation hazard. But the other result is the flammability side of it too. You have to think, though, depending on the chemical, and I know I'm getting a little off track here from CO, but depending on the chemical, the instability could not only be toxicity or flammability, but it could be a volatile reaction, polymerization, which 
I'm going to do a episode in the future on polymerization, but polymerization is basically a runaway exothermic reaction. And when you have any kind of chemical that's already polymerizing, when you arrive on scene, get back, start forming your perimeter and evacuate the area right now, because there's no stopping a polymerization reaction. I mean, that's a runaway reaction. The thing is with sometimes in hazmat, the best tactic is nothing. Just let it have its reaction, cordon the area off, make it safe. You get safe too with your crew and let it have its reaction. And then you can go in and evaluate and mitigate at that point. So again, it's not always just toxicity and fungibility. Polymerization is another big issue. Okay. Again, that just goes back to your either your tax surveys or just you doing research when you arrive on scene and doing interviews of people that are coming out of a building. What do you have in here? What do you store? And what part of the building are we going to be looking at where the leak is or the release is? So again, just going back to CO, triple bond between carbon and oxygen due to incomplete combustion makes it highly unstable. And that's what makes it so deadly as well. Now, when we get into the finer details of characteristics of the chemical, the UN number for carbon monoxide is 1016. 1016. We always say that it's due to incomplete combustion. Well, carbon monoxide actually is used in industrial side of things too. It's used for metal fabrication. It's also used to kind of mix with hydrogen during oil refining. So there's other uses for it. So you may see a tank at a fixed facility with a 1016 UN number on it, a placard. Or you might see a tanker going down the road. Now, if you do pull up to a fixed facility, it should have a NFPA 704 placard on it. What it has is it has a three for health, a four for flammability, a zero for instability, and no special hazard notes or anything, all right? So we're dealing with three for health because of the inhalation hazard. So that tells you right there, boom, SCBA. Then the flammability of four, which indicates serious, that tells you right there, we're going in with bunker gear, okay? So right there, you kind of just got an idea. Even if you didn't know that CO was in that building, right there with the NFPA 704 placard, you have an idea of, I got an SVA and I have to wear a bunker gear. And you know what? I have water on the fire truck, so we'll be able to deal with that. Okay. Instability, the yellow section of the uh, placard, that's a big concern to me is like, is it water reactive? Things like that in the special notes. But we have nothing for CO, so we're good on that. Well, when we look at the molecular formula in the NIOSH guide, it's obviously just CO. It doesn't have that, the three little lines there indicating a triple bond. Some chemicals will have that. They'll have a, uh, like an equal sign or they'll have the three lines indicating a double or a triple bond. Just pay attention to that when you're reading your NIOSH guide, okay? But this one in particular, knowing the background of CO, we know it's a triple bond, okay? So if you're listening to this, kind of tuck that away in the uh, research center of your brain. The molecular weight of CO, 28.01. Now we know the molecular weight of air is 29, so it's slightly lighter than air. With that said, CO is kind of lazy. It's not heavier than air, slightly lighter. So when we have any kind of CO release into a building, our thing is, well, we need to start ventilating. But the problem with CO is it is nice and lazy. It wafts around for a little while. It finds little voids, little pockets in the building and the walls, you name it. And the problem with that is that over time, or if it gets into like a really small confined spot, it can just build up, get into that nice flammability range. and as simple as a light switch kicking on or a refrigerator compressor kicking on could be enough to hit that flammable range of CO and cause a explosion. When we think of that, as long if there's no cross breeze or cross ventilation of a building and there's CO in there, you're going to have to do a really good job of ventilation and 
pretty heavy duty air monitoring. You might have to make multiple entries. And I went on a carbon monoxide call many years ago and myself and my partner must have made nine to 10 entries, bunker gear, SCBA with our five gas monitor because the primary hot zone of the CO source was a vehicle running in a garage and it was in a apartment complex. It affected the neighboring three apartments from the source. So basically we had four apartments affected. So we had to go and check into each apartment at the levels. And we had high levels of CO on our monitor on the fourth floor, all the way down to the first floor and everywhere in between where it was kind of there, kind of not there. It just was kind of just popping up. So we had to do a lot of ventilation. It was it was a long-winded call just because we had so many apartments affected. The other thing too is what can possibly spread CO as a common attic. So if you have any apartments in your area that have a common cock loft, you might be dealing with, I have the source apartment on the farthest end of the building. And then on the opposite end of the building, in that apartment, you have CO levels because of the common attic. So that's another thing. But they did do some research. The Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, they did a little research on the diffusion of CO through gypsum drywall. Found that, yes, it does permeate into the drywall and can spread through a building through drywall. Now, obviously, they didn't really give specifics of thickness of drywall, but that was the end result was, depending on the thickness of the drywall, will determine how much and how fast diffuses into the drywall, therefore going into a neighboring room, a neighboring apartment. So the fact is, though, I'm, I'm assuming though, like quarter inch drywall is gonna diffuse a lot quicker with CO than half inch drywall, for example. So it just kind of makes you think, that's why, reiterating, sound like a broken record on this podcast, this episode of with make sure you do your due diligence and monitor the entire building. And that could be a large apartment complex. That could be a large commercial building. You name it, just do your due diligence and monitor. Okay. Because just like smoke in a fire, when CO is kind of moving and it hits a wall, it's going to start to mushroom just like, like smoke would in a high rise fire. It goes up, it goes up and then it hits that ceiling and then it starts to come down the walls and creating that mushroom effect. CO is no different to that. Plus, CO is going to find the path of least resistance with the air currents within that building, just like smoke would if a fire was burning. So just keep that in mind. That's why you may think like, yeah, I'm on the farthest end of this apartment complex or this commercial building. There's no way it could get to the other opposite end of this building. It's huge. Don't think that way. That's that complacency. No, double check. Just send somebody down there. You know what? You're already on the call. Do your due diligence and make sure you're doing the air monitoring. The goal is before you can deem that building safe, because that's a common question we get on scene is, hey, when can I go back in? And understandable, if you're a business owner and you're shut down for a few hours because you have a CO release in the building, or it's in the middle of the night and you were sleeping and you were woken up by the fire department, police trying to evacuate the building because of a CO call, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. And you know that they want to get back into their place of business or their residence. But to make you probably sleep better at night and for justification of what you're doing there is Get that building down to a zero. So if you have to spend another hour there venting it with a fan, but we get it down to a zero and then we can release it back to the uh, occupants. Hey, I can sleep better at night knowing that it's down to zero when I left. Because the one thing you don't want to do is respond back to that building later on. Somebody who's having CO poisoning symptoms or somebody that's it's a fatality or somebody that's really, really critical that may not survive because they were exposed so long because, hey, I didn't think to check that one apartment and there was high levels of CO in there. Remember, it's colorless, odorless. So people might start feeling the effects and not think anything of it. Be like, oh, maybe I'm coming down with the flu. So that's the, the thing we have to think here, okay? So going back to the characteristics of the uh, chemical itself, we talked about molecular weight. Now we're going to talk about ideal age. 
IDLH is 1,200 parts per million. Now, over time, that's going to be very deadly. And I know when people say, hey, anything under 1,000 is really, really bad. Anything under 100 is immediately deadly. Like one or two breaths and you'll be unresponsive and possibly dead from the inhalation. Now, 1,200 parts per million is pretty significant. But that's going to be time-weighted because I'm going to go over some other parts per million and like the time of when it's going to be potentially fatal. Now, if we're looking at 400 parts per million, that could be life-threatening in three hours and beyond. So again, it's time-weighted. Yeah. So now we're getting lower. We're under 1,000 at this point at that 400 parts per million. So 800 parts per million within two to three hours, it could be fatal. 1,600 parts per million within one hour. And then 6,400 parts per million, 30 minutes. And then if it's 12,800 parts per million, that's one to three minutes of how lethal it can be. So again, that 1,200 parts per million, that's our point of where it gets that IDLH categorization because that's when health effects begin. And that's why it gets that IDLH rating, all right? So 1,200 parts per million, very deadly. The flammability range, the lower explosive limit, 12%. The upper explosive limit is 74%. That's a big range. And like I said in a previous podcast, the fact of the explosive range, it's very dynamic. It's a dynamic environment. Why? Because you have something that might be too lean or too rich, but then in that other area of that flammability range might be the perfect mixture of oxygen, and it just meets that perfect range. And like I said before, a light switch being flipped on, a refrigerator compressor kicking on. Something so minuscule that we don't even think about could be the thing that trips a explosive issue with carbon monoxide at its flammable range. So again, I always tell everybody, don't get complacent. And when I was in fire academy, when we were going over like the like the four hours of hazmat training we got back then, I think it's still about four hours, maybe maybe a little bit longer now. But it was very minimal when I was in half fire academy, and this is well over fifteen years ago. The point is, the instructor had that complacent attitude because he wasn't a hazmat tech, he wasn't a hazmat guy. He just kind of said, "Yeah, don't worry about it. If it's too rich or too lean." You're good. It won't explode. It won't catch on fire. But he never went over the flammability range. And this is more talking like propane, methane, things like that, the natural gas responses. But the point is the complacency I saw there was too rich, too lean. Don't worry about it. You're fine. As I started expanding my knowledge into hazmat and my love of hazmat, you realize that flammability range is a dynamic atmosphere. I might be monitoring on this side here, on the left side of the uh, vapor cloud. And yes, it's too rich or too lean to burn. I move 10 inches over and now I'm in the perfect range for something to light off. So that's what I mean by the dynamic aspect of the flammability range. And carbon monoxide is no different than a propane leak or a methane leak, okay? Obviously we're dealing with the toxicity initially, but that flammability should be in the back of your mind, okay? So the chemical is soluble in water, so it does mix. And we do consider it a flammable gas, so it's in the class two of the nine chemical classes, and it's also listed as an inhalation hazard as well. So you'll see the red placard with the two on the bottom, flammable gas and the flame on top, and then you'll see the skull and crossbone inhalation hazard with the two on the bottom of that placard. So again, if you see it going down the road or it's at a fixed facility and you know that they do metal fabrication, they could have CO there just for that part of the industrial aspect of using CO for whatever they're making. So a few things to discuss. You might go on that call where it is a residential or a commercial CO alarm, and you're wondering, and, and, I, and I always wondered this too back before I got into really heavy duty in the hazmat many, 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 many years ago, back when I was just a hazmat operations from when I got in fire academy. 
if you're doing EMS or if your EMS equipment on your fire truck or your rescue truck has a small CO monitor clipped onto it, these are usually throwaways. These are like, they, they are good for two years. After that expiration date, then you just throw them away and buy them when they're cheap enough. That's what a lot of departments do. But you're like, when does it, when is a trip? When is a residential one that you go on that call at like midnight for a CO alarm? Why did the trip? What was the parts per million to make a trip? Those small monitors we have clipped onto our EMS equipment and the home CO detectors, they go by low levels to alert. And the ones we have on our equipment can trip at 50 parts per million to 200 parts per million. But in the home, it could trip at 50 parts per million. But the problem with that is that could be a long-term effect. That could be 50 parts per million in that building up to eight hours before it finally trips that CO alarm. Meanwhile, if you've been in that building for eight hours, you might start feeling some of the effects, maybe some fatigue, maybe a headache, malaise, but it's like a time-weighted kind of thing. Like you've been exposed to it for that amount of time over, eventually you're going to start probably feeling the effects of it because you've been in that building. You haven't gone out in the fresh air. That's the thing with that. But the mounted ones at a house or a business can trip at 150 parts per million within a couple minutes. So if the levels are that high and there's a source that's just cranking out that that CO, it should trip relatively quickly, okay? But if it's something like, eh, every now and then it gets a little whiff of CO in the environment, it may not trip because it has to have to build up. And it does use a couple different types of technology too, like electrochemical, biomimetic sensors, things like that. So it's just a matter of what is it gonna do? What does the sensor do to trip it? Okay, some of them are, it changes color in the, like like almost like a, like a sponge within that sensor, changes color to the point where it changes the electroactivity of it, and then boom, it trips the alarm because the CO is just absorbing into like that sponge, for example, within that, you know, it's not a sponge, but similar to that. So there's just the technology. But the fact is, if it trips, especially if you have the ones that are clipped onto your EMS equipment, you're walking into a building, somebody's like kind of like out of it and your alarm's going off, don't think like, oh, it always goes off. No, it could be the real deal. So back out and maybe get somebody to get an SVN, remove the patient, and then you can begin your treatment. The other thing too that you might respond to is cross sensitivity that trips the alarm. And I've been on I countless CO calls and many times it was at cross sensitivity. And to give you an example of a, a call that we used to run all the time in a particular response zone I was in was hydrogen. Hydrogen would trip the alarm at, at this one particular residence almost every night at 2 a.m. Like clockwork. And we got to the point where we're like, all right, change your battery. Hey, call your alarm company because it was hardwired in through a um, actual monitoring company. Did all that, kept tripping, kept tripping. So finally, we traced it back to their golf cart because it was the neighborhood was on a golf course. The golf cart was being plugged in and charged, obviously, after a day of using it. And at that point, the batteries were so overcharged, they started releasing hydrogen gas. So with that understanding of that, we always would get high numbers right in the garage. We were like, all right. Finally, we just pulled the, uh, the bench seat off of the golf cart, put the monitor right near it, and then it tripped really quick and high, high numbers of CO. So the other thing too was we weren't getting any other changes on the monitor, on the five gas, which is an indicator. Either the cross sensitivity is there or you have a bad sensor. So just keep that in mind. But we traced it back to cross sensitivity of the CO detector within the residence. And it was the hydrogen gas that was being released from an overcharged golf cart battery. So after that, we just told them, stop plugging it in at night. Plug it in during the day. Keep the garage open. Remember, hydrogen is highly flammable too. Keep it plugged in during the day. Garage open with the cross ventilation. Keep your doors closed to your house from the garage into your house. 
and you're good. And we never got, we never had that call ever again at that residence. But going back to what I was saying, if you're in a situation and your five gas monitor is alerting like crazy, and you're only getting readings on the CO part of that of that monitor, then no other changes, no LEL showing up, no change in O2, no VOCs, nothing like that, then you might have a bad sensor. And another thing too is if you constantly turn that five gas on and it keeps tripping the CO, the CO uh, sensor within that monitor might be bad or saturated. So you got to change that. You got to take it out of service. One thing I do recommend is if you do have somebody qualified within your department that can work on monitors and they have that tech certification and change it out if you have that sensor right there. If you don't, then don't mess with it because it could void any warranties or damage the monitor itself. Send it out to the manufacturer and have it changed. Just keep that in mind. And the other thing too is, and, I, and I've seen this countless times over the years with a four gas monitor, five gas monitors, is in, during the morning check, you turn it on, people put it right in the uh, exhaust pipe of the apparatus just to get it to trip. Well, guess what you're doing? You're getting a nice, good gulp of all the particles from that exhaust right onto the uh, sensor or whatever's coming out and damaging it, saturating it. And yeah, it might not keep alerting and all that after you get it away from that the exhaust pipe, but then you've saturated the monitor and that particular sensor. Now you go to use it on a call later on and you're not getting any readings, but you're walking into a actual IDLH environment because that monitor is damaged. So it's leading you in with a false sense of security. So you got to be careful of that. So please, please, please refrain from putting the end of that monitor into the exhaust pipe just to check it to see if it activates during your morning check. Because that's a quick way to damage it and put you and your crew at risk because of a false sense of security. So just keep that in mind. Another thing to bring up too about CO calls and working with a five gas monitor is when you do your fresh air calibration, make sure that you are far enough away from the hazard, the hot zone, the building in question, and make sure that you're far enough away from any vehicles that are running because you don't want that inadvertent pickup of the exhaust during fresh air calibration. So make sure you're pretty far away from everything while you're doing it before you make entry into your hot zone. Now remember, monitoring not only is to figure out my hot zone, and, and remember, how I look at it is monitors are good for a couple things. Getting your, your border, your perimeter of your hot zone, and two, Continuous monitoring helps you know if mitigation procedures are working. In this sense, is ventilation working? Monitoring also gives me an idea of parts per million and what percent we're dealing with. Now, remember, if you get a hit for 1%, that's 10,000 parts per million. So if you have 20%, that should tell you that you have 200,000 parts per million of that chemical in there. And what did we just say before? 12,800 parts per million is fatal within one to three minutes of being exposed to it. So if I have 200,000 parts per million of CO, if anybody's in there, chances are they're possibly deceased. Now, the other thing too is when you're going to these calls, look around because if there are small children in the house or animals, animals and small children will be affected a lot sooner than a grown adult will, depending on exposure time. Reason is children don't have as much hemoglobin in the blood as adults. That's why they breathe faster than us. They got to move that oxygen a little quicker with respirations as opposed to hemoglobin moving it and that oxygen reserve that we have built up as adults. So they don't have as much hemoglobin, so they will be affected earlier. Animals, birds, dogs, cats, if you see any of them that are deceased on the ground when you first walk into a CO call, that should start telling you that you have a major problem here. You have a actual, you have a hazmat call, one. So hopefully you've already been on the horn with dispatch and you're calling for a hazmat team. And a side note to that is, Try to put the pride thing aside, okay? Don't think that by calling hazmat out, if you're on a non-hazmat company, 
that it undermines you and your crew and the work you're doing. No, no, no. You're getting the ball rolling for the hazmat team. You're giving us, because we might be 20, 30 minutes away coming to you. And we are relying on the first arriving units to relay to us, because you're basically our eyes and ears till we get there. You're our recon group to tell us what are we dealing with? What levels do you have if, if your truck happens to have a five gas or a four gas monitor? What are you dealing with? Relay it to us because then we can start getting our game plan going when we get there. Are we going to do immediate ventilation? What are we doing? Do we have to do recovery? All that. So please, please, please don't think it undermines you as a crew. It's, if anything, you're getting the ball rolling for us because we're a far distance out. So definitely get on the horn and get hazmat there. The other thing too is if you have any deceased victims there and they're confirmed deceased, obviously don't move them. It's now a crime scene. So the police have to come in and do their investigation, but you're probably going to have to assist hazmat with ventilation procedures just to make it safe for the investigators from the law enforcement side to come in and do their do their thing okay so just keep that in mind just um, another thing too i want to read to you is when somebody is really exposed to co the percent of co in the body i just want to kind of give you a little read off a chart here that i have and this is also in the article um on fire engineering that you can look up and like i said i'll put the link on the facebook page but percent of co levels in the body if you have 20 percent the signs and symptoms are headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, blurred vision, loss of manual dexterity. 30%, we have altered mental status, chest pain, lethargy, tachypnea, tachycardia, rhabdomyolysis, syncope, impaired judgment, loss of coordination, decreased motor abilities, temporary blindness, hearing loss. So basically at that point, things are starting to shut down because you are so saturated with that, that chemical, that gas, that your body is now starved for oxygen at the systemic level. So you are now beginning to shut down at 40 to 60%. Hypotension, cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, dysrhythmia, seizures, convulsions, coma, greater than 60%, death. So again, just to reiterate the importance of wear your PPE, do proper monitoring, get people out of the environment as quickly as you can if you do find them there. Let's kind of review what we do when we get somebody out of a CO environment. Now we get them out, they're a viable victim, we're taking them to the hospital, they might be unresponsive, whatever, but they're alive. We do want to remove the clothing, very simple decontamination. And you can remove 80 to 90% of that product, even though we're dealing with an inhalation hazard. And CO is mainly that inhalation hazard as opposed to that dermal hazard. But if you just feel better about it, remove the clothing. 80 to 90% of the contaminant is removed at that point. But the one thing too is if they've been exposed for a long period of time, that long period of exposure will eventually show dermal exposure. And that is the cherry red skin that when I was in EMT school and they were talking about CO poisoning, they made it sound like, as soon as you walk in, every CO patient is going to be cherry red skin. You'll know it's a CO poisoning right then and there. Well, then come to do more research, get more experience in the job. You realize like, no, 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 no. Cherry red skin is a very, very late sign of a CO poisoning, like a very late sign. That could mean prolonged exposure. Dermal exposure now is involved. You can do a decon on them, soap and water, and then get them to the hospital. Remember, though, it's an inhalation hazard. So we got to focus more on that airway side of things. Let's talk about some warning signs when you're walking up to a potential CO scene. You got to look, is the patient conscious or unconscious? As I said before, children and animals are more susceptible to the effects of CO before a grown adult will be. Are the in-home CO detectors going off? Are they beeping at you? Are they, they illuminated red, indicating that they're activated? So when you go in with your PPE on to do the little walkabout and investigation and you're monitoring, look around at the walls. You see those monitors activated or beeping. The other thing too is it may be an unintentional poisoning. But we also have to think people still use carbon monoxide to commit suicide. So look for any kind of suicide notes. Are they 
Is there one laying on the countertop? Is there one taped to the window or the door when you first walk in? Things like that. Just situational awareness, okay? And the other thing, too, is bystanders or neighbors complaining of CO poisoning symptoms. This could be an issue in the, again, going back to the call I had where it was that apartment complex and four apartments were affected. There were people that were feeling the effects of CO and they had to go to the hospital. So, again, it was a, an issue that you may have when you're going to a large residential apartment building or townhouse kind of complex are other people having the effects from neighboring apartments from the actual hot zone of where the CO is. When you're dealing with CO response, remember, you initially go in, you do your little walkabout, you do your monitoring, you start doing your mitigation procedures, you do your monitoring again, do a secondary search too, because you never know what you're going to find again with the monitoring or victims. So it's kind of like a structure fire. We do our primary search when we first get there. And then a little bit later into the call, we do a secondary search just to make sure we didn't miss anything. And that's more of the thorough search. So again, it applies to a CO call too. So when we are dealing with treatment of a patient, so if your department does a lot of EMS, you do transport and whatnot, or maybe you don't do transport, but your EMTs and paramedics and whatnot. When we're dealing with treatment of a CO patient, you have to remember that a person who is in, doesn't smoke and has greater than 5% CO level or somebody who does smoke and has greater than 10% CO level when you do the monitoring on a CO oximeter, that's a significant exposure. That's a poisoning. They need to go to the hospital and get, get treated. Now, normal readings for a CO level of just what kind of like you're breathing out and about in the world going about your day is zero to 3%. So it tells you anything over 5% for non-smokers, anything over 10% for smokers, we have a significant exposure here because on average, a person who smokes, their CO level could be anywhere from six to 8%. And that's normal for them because they smoke cigarettes or whatever they smoke. But our issue is between 10 to 20%. If we see anything like that on a CO oximeter, which is like a pulse oximeter, except that has like a little cover over the probe. And we want to keep ambient light out from it because it can throw off the, the CO monitoring of it. If we see that, 10 to 20%, that's a significant exposure. They should be going to the hospital to get treated. Now, obviously, again, I'm not trying to change how you do pro your local protocols or your state protocols for medical treatment. Just follow what your department and your agency goes by, your medical director. But this is kind of like some food for thought. Now, one thing to remember is obviously we go by the airway, the breathing, and all that. If we're missing any of that, we're going to start working on that. We're going to start trying to breathe for them. We're going we're gonna to do all our advanced life support care on that. Now, Remember, the half-life of CO at regular room O2 levels, like what you're breathing now, is 21%, but the half-life is six hours. So if you get the person out and you just put them in like a regular room, you don't give them any oxygen, you just let them breathe what we're breathing now, and they're breathing on their own, obviously, but they were exposed to CO, six hours till that CO just naturally busts off their hemoglobin and is refilled with regular oxygen, all right? That's the half-life. Now, same patient. Same victim. Exposed to CO, you get them out of the environment, you give them high flow oxygen, whether it's a non-rebreather or if you give it through a bag valve mask, the half-life of the CO is 90 minutes at that point because you're forcing that 100% oxygen in as opposed to 21% oxygen. So just to kind of give you an idea, best treatment for a CO victim is get them out of the environment and start breathing or give them oxygen if they're able to breathe on their own. The other thing too is just reiterating, if you're using a CO oximeter like a Rad 57, okay, and we're not promoting any kind of product, but that's one I've used in the past. It can be used as a pulse oximeter or a CO oximeter, or you have a rainbow sensor on your life pack. That's another thing too. Again, we're not promoting any products. This is some an equipment that I have 
personal experience with. That is something that you can utilize to get your, your levels and give you an idea of what level of exposure they have to the CO. But again, if it has that uh, finger probe cover, make sure you have that on because that ambient light will screw it up and give you false readings. The other thing too is avoid using a regular pulse, pulse oximeter on a patient that has CO because remember, the pulse oximeter doesn't care what chemical is on the hemoglobin. It just cares that the hemoglobin is saturated. So yeah, we want to have oxygen on it, but if they just got pulled out of a CO environment and you put them on a regular pulse oximeter and it's showing 99 or 100% and you're thinking, wow, this is great. Yeah, this is, this is good. Whoa, hold the phone here. They might have CO poisoning because that pulse oximeter is only reading the saturation of the hemoglobin. It doesn't care whether it's CO on there or oxygen. It just says, oh, I see saturation on the hemoglobin. We're good. Here's the number. So that's why you need a CO oximeter to tell you truly what the percentage is because that looks for CO particularly on your hemoglobin. So just don't get in that false sense of, oh, they're at 99 or 100 on the pulse oximeter. Great. They're breathing perfect. They got plenty of oxygen. The other thing too is if you're transporting a patient or making any kind of transport decisions, think of hyperbaric oxygen. That could be if they have pretty extensive exposure time to CO. CO treatment could be hyperbaric oxygen as well, just to kind of make the half-life even shorter compared to like the 90 minutes if you're given high flow oxygen. But if you have a hyperbaric chamber in your region, and as long as it's not prolonging, don't bypass a ton of hospitals just to get there. If the person's critical, take them to the nearest hospital and let them make the decision after you drop them off at that hospital. They might ship them out to a, him or her to a hyperbaric facility. But if they're critical, to the nearest hospital, obviously. But if my nearest hospital has hyperbaric chamber there, that's even better. It's a win-win, especially if they have a prolonged period of CO poisoning. Now remember, when CO gets on that hemoglobin, it's going to create carboxyhemoglobin. So that's basically what it creates. Our goal is to get it back to oxyhemoglobin. Another thing too is, this is a side note that if you're dealing with EMS and you're, you're treating and transporting people, is there is a, another type of CO poisoning that can occur. And this could be intentional or unintentional ingestion of it, but the chemical is methylene chloride. And it's in quite a few products. It's in paints, adhesives, paint strippers. It's in heavy duty stuff like that. I mean, those are just a few examples, but it's in a lot more chemicals. But remember, methylene chloride. If somebody were to ingest that, your liver is going to try to metabolize it. But the problem is your body's going to do more harm than good to you. So when your liver tries to metabolize methylene chloride, it actually is going to create a byproduct with that metabolization in the liver of carbon monoxide poisoning. So in a, essentially you're being carbon monoxide poisoned from the inside out as opposed to the outside in, like breathing it in. So it is something um, to look out for, especially if you go to a poison ingestion call. Look at it. You see methylene chloride on that, on that bottle when you read it? Uh, start treating with oxygen and whatnot because it's going to start off-gassing internally from the metabolization of the liver in the form of CO. One thing, too, to remember is if you have that person that did ingest that methylene chloride and they begin vomiting, that's going to off-gas. So just, again, watch out for secondary exposure to the victim and to you as a responder. So let's let's recap what we're doing here, okay, for our CO response. Obviously, we're going to do a size up. We're going to secure the scene. We're going to listen for any active CO alarms or any audible alarms that I can hear from outside the building while I'm getting my gear on or kind of getting an idea of what we're dealing with here, okay? Look for the potential of or the obvious line of sight, unresponsive people or animals inside a vehicle, a residence, 
any kind of commercial building, things like that, immediately request hazmat because CO is a hazmat call. You may not have all the monitors either on your truck, but hazmat should have the monitors to come in and do air monitoring. Okay, so that's why another reason you want to have hazmat respond. Obviously, we're going to be making up the warm zone and we're going to be doing the hot zone possibly if we have our proper monitoring on our vehicles. And you're going to be making sure that your crew is in proper PPE, in this case, again, bunker gear and SCBA. Again, consider the explosive hazard of CO. That's why you want to make sure you're in full gear. As you're going to that call, or if it's an afterthought when you're already on scene, get an idea of what the wind speed and direction is from from the dispatcher. This can aid with you cordoning off the area with a perimeter or what windows and doors to open to help with cross ventilation, even more with a fan and whatnot to kind of air out that building a lot quicker. Make sure you do your fresh air calibration of your four or five gas monitor, okay, away from the scene and away from any running vehicles, okay? You want to make sure you get a nice, crisp, clean background with the fresh air calibration. The other thing too is make sure that all the crews on the scene that are going to be making entry to either retrieve a victim or just be monitoring the, the building itself, that all of your radios are intrinsically safe, okay? That's, again, depends on what your agency uses, but intrinsically safe because of that explosive hazard to CO. Remember, it's a dynamic atmosphere. If you have any victims that are deemed deceased, leave them where they are. Begin your mitigation procedures of the CO within that building for the crime scene investigators to come out. Okay, Remember, CO is a very lazy, kind of wafty little gas. So yeah, it's lighter than air, but barely. So it's just going to want to hang around and you're not kind of pushing it out. It's, it's like that annoying friend that the party ended an hour ago and they're still hanging out talking to you. So just think of that, okay? It's the lazy friend that doesn't want to leave. If you do have any viable victims, line of sight rescue, get them out of the environment immediately, begin treating them with oxygen to help with cutting the CO with the half-life, and then transport them off scene. And the last thing is, if there's no victims, it's just an activation and you do have hits on your CO sensor on your or on your monitor then begin your mitigation uh, procedures. And if you're a non-hazmat company, you may assist hazmat with the ventilation and continuous monitoring. That basically sums up the CO Hazmatician Chronicle episode. I uh, hope you all got something out of it. It's a lot going on and I just don't want anybody to get caught up in that complacency aspect of just go in real quick, take a peek. Don't worry about your bunker gear. Just throw an air pack on. I've said it before on podcast episodes. We're the greatest show on earth, the fire department. So when we show up, lights and siren, and people are watching and filming us and putting us on YouTube and whatnot, or Facebook, give them a show. We're the gear. Going with the monitors. We're the greatest show on earth. You know, take that for what it's worth, but that's what I truly believe. And I hope that everybody else kind of feels the same way, but we're there. Wear your gear. Wear your SCBA. Take that extra precaution, okay? Because the end result is everybody goes home safe. We always hear that no matter what kind of training is, whether it's firefighting training, paramedic training, you name it, everybody goes home safe. That That's uh, the motto for the fire service, I think. But I hope you all enjoyed this uh, installment. And we want to thank our sponsors again, Hazmat Advanced Training Solutions, with their high-quality, customized hazmat training and advanced fire training. Check their website out, hazmattrainingcourses.com, and see what they have to offer. If nothing else, I hope everybody stays safe out there and be vigilant, and we'll see you on the next installment. Take care.